My name is Lucy, and I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, Lucy. Hi, everybody. I'd like to describe uh, briefly what kind of a compulsive overeater I am. Um, I am the garden variety. Uh, I did engage in certain interesting behaviors that I didn't even know were a thing until I came into OA and I heard other people describe them. I am almost exclusively a night eater. I don't really binge during the day. I can, but I tend to be a night night eater. It usually starts around 10 and goes on until the wee hours of the morning. Um, I am a spitter. Didn't know that was a thing. Had no idea. Uh, but I would spit out my food. Didn't know that was like a technique, but it was one of them. I am a compulsive dieter. Um, let me see what else. Oh, an inveterate snacker. So a lot, when I wasn't binging, I would binge about not every night, about every three days, so maybe about twice a week, three times a week. In my teens and college years, it was every night. Um, but I would snack. So what does that look like? That would be going to Starbucks four times a day and getting the samples. But I wasn't really eating because it was a sample. And standing up when I ate, and that doesn't count because you're standing, or um, you know, like behavior like, behavior like that. Um, I came into my first meeting in 1986 to the Hill Street meeting, which is um, Santa Monica and Venice, if, if you're from out of town. Uh, it's a little tiny church with beautiful stained glass windows, a 7.30 meeting. It was suggested I go to the meeting because I was going to see a life coach, and he thought I had a problem with food. And I hated the meeting, and I went out and ate as much breakfast as I possibly could um, because I, those people made me want to eat. I came back 20 years later. I came back in 2006. I had gone to see a therapist who was a longtime member of this fellowship. She probably has 40-plus years now. And she suggested I was a compulsive overeater and that I should seek out uh, help. It's a word I didn't like, so it's hard for me to say. Seek out help. And um, so I went to the meeting, and I thought, yeah, you know, this is kind of cool. And, and these guys don't have a job, um, but I do. So um, I will come a little bit late, and I'll leave a little bit early because I actually am important. And um, obviously these guys have a lot of free time. So, um, you know, and I'd been in another fellowship, so I knew how to work the steps. So I didn't need to work the steps. I didn't need to get a sponsor. Uh, so that's kind of how I did it. And then I got abstinent in 2008. So I've been abstinent uh, almost 15 years. Uh, I have been at this height, which is almost 5'7", 125. I've been close to 170. I've been a size 6. I've been a size 16. I am now a very comfortable um, size 10. Do I wish I was a 6 or an 8? Sure, but who cares? Um, I am the way I look. I am happy with the way I look. Um, doesn't mean I don't have moments like yesterday where I thought, whose stomach is that? But I, generally speaking, I'm very happy with the way I look and um, very grateful to, to be here. Um, so <clears throat> I came from a long line of compulsive overeaters. Um, my mother, my grandmother can't take their, their inventory, but let's just say they were obsessed with food and talked about it a great deal and obsessed with dieting as was my aunt. I also come from a big amount of alcoholics and also anorexics and restrictors. I have a cousin who has been hospitalized recently, um, bless her heart, and one of the great gifts of this program is that I was able to go see her and talk to her. <clears throat> and her mother left me alone with her so and her sister so that I could speak to her about what it's like to 
suffer from this, from this disease, which I believe is out to kill us. Um, and I, I don't want to be dramatic about it. Um, I kind of do, because, because people talk about OA sometimes like it's kind of, this is my opinion, all right? Uh, like it's the bastard stepchild of the mothership. Like, oh, that's the really bad one. You know, you end up in an alley with a needle in your arm. I'm like, yeah, you end up dead in this program. It might take a little bit longer, but you end up dead. Best case scenario, just kill your soul. That's what was happening to me. Um, I was in a soul-sucking disease that wanted me uh, dead. And um, so I take this disease extremely seriously. Um, I, I don't know what to say about it than that. You know, I haven't been feeling that well this week. And Atusa asked me to speak. And I thought, whatever it takes to get to speak here, I'm going to do it. Not because I think I'm doing you guys a favor, because I need it. I, I need it. <laughs> you may not need it. I need it. And it's the same way I feel about my sponsees. Hopefully I don't hurt them too much, but I really need them. You know, um, I really need them. And I need them because they're irritating. You know, they drive me, <laughs> they drive, they, they drive me out of my mind. And um, this way I can, you know, face my own disdain and face my own issues. And it's extremely helpful. So I grew up, as a girlfriend of mine likes to say, in a very white background. I was very white. Um, and my parents had plenty of money, and they went to fancy schools. And then my father decided he was going to give all this up and um, go into the Peace Corps. And uh, so at the age of six, I discovered what it was like to be truly lonely. There was a 1,000 people in my school. There was 12 white children. I was often robbed in my bedroom. I had, uh, I was covered with ticks. I never had leeches. My brother had leeches. Um, my parents had this propensity for war zones. They loved taking us to war zones. So Tehran, Golan Heights, Kabul, been to all those places. And then their favorite part was they would leave us alone there while they went out to dinner. I mean, I think part of what they were doing, and I think it was very noble in many ways, was they were trying to educate us that, um, being a rich white person was a, was a very, uh, what do you call it, privileged opportunity. And there was other people that lived different ways. So I learned very early on that there was other people that lived different ways. Um, I had a squat toilet, but it was very clean. So I grew up knowing how to use that. I'm very grateful for that, having been to many third world countries. So I had, but I was truly deeply, deeply lonely. And I could eat and I could read books. And I did both those things. And then the other thing I did is I danced. I was a very serious uh, ballet dancer. And uh, so I learned very on I was too fat. I was always too fat to do ballet. Always too fat. And actually, at one point, when I was 13, 14, I lost 20-something uh, pounds. It got down to 125. And I looked in the mirror, and I thought, I have hips. What's the point? And I felt totally betrayed by my body. Like, God gave me hips. Like, why didn't I look like a boy? I've lost all this... Wait, it's like God saying, God gave me a head or God gave me freckles. You know, so I learned really early on there was something terribly wrong with me. That's how I interpreted it. You know, why did my parents not pay more attention to me? Why did they leave us alone in these insane circumstances? And my, my very lovely and very noble and very intelligent and very kind in many ways parents would do stuff like they would go to a party and probably get drunk and they would leave me as a baby at the party in the... And I, my girlfriend and I laugh about it, sort of, today. And so they would call up and they would say to my dad, you know, you left something in the party. He said, what was it, my coat? And he said, no, the baby. So they'd have to come back. But they, there was just a huge amount of neglect 
um, there's a huge amount of um, <laughs> award-winning, uh, I don't know, academic prizes and, and extraordinary achievement and, and uh, extraordinary academic achievement, but there's a lot of neglect because they presumed they had money and were educated and therefore we just raise ourselves. So they would raise us by, they put us on a bus in Washington, D.C. when my brother was 12 and I was 14 and we had my 14 and a half or 15-year-old friend, they'd say, get off in San Francisco. So we'd spend three days in a bus, we changed, I mean, we just did all this crazy shit where they left us alone. I mean, with grizzly bears, it was all kinds of bizarre stuff. So, um, I know it was very odd. So, um, the good news about that is, um, you know, I, if I'm stuck in a snowstorm, I know to build a snow cave. I mean, I guess that's good news. But, um, but so there was a lot of danger and there was a lot of food. You know, I could trust food. I could trust food. And it was so great. And I had this little Betty Crocker cookbook. And I would cook, like, all my little Betty Crocker recipes. And I spelled out my name, you know. And, and, and I could get approval. And I'd make food for my dad. And I could get their attention. Food for my mom. And, um, and then, of course, there was this push-pull thing. Because I was a dancer. And they wanted to give me lead roles. But they'd say, well, you can't fit in the costumes. And, and all my friends would be, you know, in the costume. So I, I, my, how I absorbed it, and this is just me as my, not necessarily unique, but other people absorb it in different ways. I just decided I was bad. I just decided that God didn't love me. In the meantime, I was going to very strict religious schools, and um, there was a lot of, you're a sinner, and you're a bad person. And at that point, I was like, F it. You know, I, I can't be perfect, so just F it. I'm fat, and I'm a bad person, so let's just go... Let's just go for it, you know. So I, I went for it. <clears throat> and then, um, you know, that in puberty, of course, everything gets worse. And I solved the problem by, you know, I'd wear, I would, didn't want to wear a bathing suit in front of people. So I'd wear jeans to a pool party and go in the pool with jeans. Or I'd wear my girlfriend's bathrobe. Or I was doing all these things to conceal this profound shame that I did not belong on the planet. I'm actually quite surprised and very, very grateful that I wasn't suicidal. Like, I just felt like I had no right to be here. And, um, and the amazing thing about it is, I can just say that to you guys in total, complete safety, right? Because I know someone listening to this podcast somewhere is going to identify with how much comfort I took for food. So then I went to boarding school. People like talking about eating pints of ice cream. I'm like, small potatoes. We had industrial size, because it's a boarding school, right? So you know when you go to the ice cream store and they, if you still, guys, and they give you the, I mean, it's not a gallon, it's 10 gallons. So we would just sit, you know, with spoons, like, whoa, and eat out of these. And then, you know, for a snack, I would have eight glazed donuts. I had actually a competition with my friend Jane. She had 12, so I lost. That was my snack. (laughs) Anyway, you guys get the point. This continued. I became a performer. They were constantly, Lucy, you're too hippie, there was, they didn't mean bohemian, you know, there, it it was just constant, and, you know, I'm sort of making a joke, but really not, because really, it was very binary to me, I'm fat, I'm bad, It, it just, that's the way it went, and so I would try to restrict, I'm a failed restrictor, uh, I would try to be bulimic, I'm a failed bulimic, uh, just to go on some of the diets I've been in. There was one where you ate a lot of eggs. Don't know what that was about, hard-boiled eggs. There's one you ate grapefruit, and that 
supposedly ate up the food. I don't know what that was about. There was one where you ate only fruit. And then I went on this one where I would be, quote-unquote, good. I hate the fact that... It's fun to do this. I was good yesterday. There's no good, there's no bad. We're just humans with this funky disease. Yeah, there's no good, there's no bad. We just do this funky thing with food. I mean, I was sitting next to a girlfriend of mine the other day in a meeting, and I turned to her and I went, I ate spoiled food last night. It just came to me. She goes, yeah, that's why you're here. That's 15 years in, you know? And then she said to me, how'd you get rid of sugar? I went like this. Oh, my God, I didn't. It came back. This 15 years, you know? It comes back. I mean, I know there's people here, and I've heard them. They're like, I no longer have a desire to eat. I'm like, great for you. Don't relate. Like, I... Is it better? It is so much better. It is so much better. Because when I wake up this morning and I think I am useless, I think, well, good. Thanks for the thought. We're going to get up. We're going to do our morning meditation. You know, and this morning it's only four breaths. Yesterday it was 15 minutes. You know, I can say, anybody can meditate for a minute. If you can't meditate for a minute, you can walk around the block. I don't know. You can sing happy birthday. You can pat your dog. You know, anybody can do something that settles them with their higher power. We can all make a gratitude list of 10 things that, that work for us. Um, and I do that every morning. Because if I don't do that, I don't make good decisions. I'm a person who loves going to meetings. I love going to meetings. I just, I just do. Um, when I started out, I went to five meetings a week and had five commitments. Um, and I'll talk about that in a minute. So uh, after I went to see this food therapist and she suggested I come to OA, after about two years of fooling around in OA, I had a, uh, one of those defining moments where the path becomes clear. And I had gone to Paris to be with my best friends, and I had, of course, picked out the perfect meal. Not the perfect Eiffel Tower visit, not the perfect music, the perfect meal. I had the perfect meal. It wasn't enough. I went into my hotel room and started binging. The next morning, I got up, um, and this is where I think relapse is very helpful. I had gone in and out 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, 30 days, 60 days, whatever. But I had some program under my belt because program to me is like, it's like a leak. It seeps in slowly or like a glacier, but it moves rocks. You know, it might take a while. And I have had sponsees who walked in these doors and got abstinence. It's not my story. But, and it seeped in and I'm in Paris with my head in a wastebasket, count, counting how many cheese biscuits I've eaten and trying to decide if that's a binge or not. It wasn't romantic. And I got on my, my knees on the floor and I took this third step and I said, God, please help me make a decision. Help me remove this insanity second step. And for a second, I got relief. And that was my first taste of freedom wasn't abstinent yet, but that's my taste. I came back. I had a dog who was seriously ill. Uh, there was a person in a program who was a trainer. She took me to the emergency room. She said, you have to make a gratitude list. I was like, what the F? My dog's dying. She said, make a gratitude list. I did it. Came back. I called my sponsor. She said, Lizzie, I haven't heard from you for a month. I don't sponsor you anymore. She fired me. Best thing that could have happened to me. I was hysterical, I'm crying. I called up somebody who knew somebody else, who knew somebody else, who knew somebody else in AA, who knew somebody in OA. That person is still my sponsor to the, this day. Never met her. She's still my sponsor. How's that happen? That's evidence of God in my life. Whatever you want to call God, 
This morning I read it was divine love. I like that. You know, whatever you want to call God, whatever you want to believe in, you know, it says in the big book, the room of the spirit is roomy. Whatever spirit is to you, that's what spoke to me. Spirit to me lives in this room. Spirit to me is I get to wake up in my usual depression and I get to come here and there's an answer. Like, how lucky is that? So I started working the program and went to five meetings a week and, and had five commitments, largely because I was terrified of my sponsor. And secondly, because I was in so much pain. And, you know, I've heard people come in here and I, I hope you're desperate. I hope you're in pain. I'm like, whoa, that's a little too intense. But the truth is that, that's how it works. You know, it says pain is a touchstone of change. I'm not going to come in here just because I had one extra piece of pizza and I feel kind of funky. I'm going to come here in here, me, when I'm crawling. I gave up. Alex talked earlier about giving up flour. I gave up flour and dairy um, because I had an IV in my arm at St. John's, and they said, you're violently allergic. On, on Thanksgiving Day, you're violently allergic. You know, that, that's how I gave it up. I didn't give it up because I thought it would be a nice idea. I gave it up because I'm on a gurney. <laughs> right? And I had known. I had known. Now, in all fairness, I also had been to India and had a some kind of funky something else. But I was daily eating crap that was killing me while being abstinent. So I started working the program and I started getting freedom. So what's freedom look like for me? Freedom looks like for me, if you come to my house, we can go swimming and we can go to the beach and I'm not holding in my stomach. You know, and I realized that I saw a fellow on the bike path in Santa Monica and I was like so happy to see him. And I never thought about how I looked. That's freedom. Freedom is I went to coffee, bean, and tea leaf with my girlfriend a week ago before a meeting. And I realized afterwards I never looked at the bakery case. Man, I, st- I memorized that bakery case. I can tell you the calorie content and what's this and that this was here and that this was here. Freedom is I'm not having 22 courses at Thanksgiving for two people. Two people. I did that. I had a menu. Two people. Freedom is, I can admit that I'm eating too much sugar. Freedom is, um, this morning, I was like, what should I talk about? And I thought, yeah, I should really talk about how I had problems with my dad. And I should talk about how I had problems with my mom. And I should talk about how I had problems with my husband. And I should talk about how I had problems with my ex-boyfriend who's on the radio every I thought, that's a lot of problems. <laughs> that's, that's like a lot of people I have problems with. Like, what, what does that tell you? <laughs> I'm like, this is hilarious. It's six or seven step. Like, I'm a problematic person. <laughs> like, what? I thought that was so funny. <clears throat> and, you know, this, this stupid ex-boyfriend. Let me tell you what ex-boyfriend means. I dated him in the late 80s. <laughs> and he, he's on the radio every Saturday morning. And every Saturday morning, I start screaming. And when it just... <laughs> so this morning, it's a horrible defect of character. What does this have to do with eating? Resentments are our number one offender. It's extremely clear. It doesn't say resentments might cause you problems in the big book. It says resentments keep us from the sunlight of the spirit. And originally I thought, oh, that means they keep us from having an occasional moment with God. No, they keep us from living. So I... So I'm driving here, and I turn on the radio, and I'm like, oh, my God, it's his show. i got to turn this up. Thank you. But I heard somebody else speaking. I thought, oh, thank God, maybe he's on vacation. Sure enough, he comes on, and I'm going like this. Mm, 
So in case you can't see me, I'm keeping my mouth shut so I won't start swearing. And I thought, you know, in a perfect world, he's talking about something really important. I would listen to it. But no, I can't because I hate him. And that was, you know, 35 years ago. So that's how I roll. You know, I don't let go of resentments very easily. So um, anyway, so there's a lot of defects to character to work on. Six, seven, eight, I get to work on those. Um, So let me tell you about the gifts of the program. Uh, My mother died six years ago, and uh, as I've just discovered, uh, I had problems with my mother. So uh, guess who stayed in the house with her in hospice for four days? You know, that was me. That's what the program taught me to do. And I was the person that held her hand, and I was the person that... Not that my sister and brother weren't amazing. They were incredible. Uh, But I was the one sleeping there. And then my brother got terminal cancer two years ago. And uh, I was the one that helped him die, meaning um, he was in so much pain uh, that he really wanted to go. And I was like, you can go. You can totally go. You can... And, of course, it was very difficult for other people. So that's the superpower my girlfriend talks about. We get the gift of that in the program. And I let the, you know, all those semi-funny stories I told you about leaving overseas, my brother was the one that kept me alive. My brother was the one that uh, never deserted me and literally would pull me out of swimming pools when I would get the bright idea to swim alone when I was eight because my parents were never there or keep me company when I was in some godforsaken kibbutz in the Golan Heights, you know, and, and uh, well, the kibbutz was fine. The Golan Heights was not as good, but um, <laughs> anyway, so, so I was losing my brother, and this program teaches me that I have to show up in love however that looks like for that person, because my brother was not dying in a way that I thought was appropriate. So, because I've had a lot of experience with dying, so of course I would know, but he wasn't dying in the way I wanted him to. And I get to love him anyway, you know? And right now, my dad's having a very hard time because his dog is dying. And I was just with my dad, and um, I was having a really difficult time because a lot of those childhood memories were coming back, and I was kind of going into that early childhood trauma. And after dinner, he was sitting down, and I sat there with him, and and, um, I said, are you okay? And he said, "Uh, being here makes me miss your brother. And I thought, oh, God, I just want to read my book. (laughs) And so I sat there, and I said, I can't imagine anything worse than losing a child. And we talked. And that's that God decision. That's that... uh, higher power driven decision that's that because uh, I'm selfish and self-centered you know and the book talks about self 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 the book talks about insanity once I counted how many times insanity comes up in the book it was like something like 23 or something in a couple pages um, and because uh, I, I just wanted to go what was, what was comfortable and I get to be there with my dad you know and really love him in the way that he needs to be loved and he needs to be cared about and 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 I'll get to have that memory that I showed up for my mom and my dad and, and my brother and that's that's not like 99% program that's 100% and 
I've been taught in this program not to eat while you do this or you'll miss the moment. And if there's one thing, there's two things really that I want to leave you with potentially is that for me, the best medicine for this program is consistency. You don't have to do everything right. You just do it every day. You don't have to believe it works here. You just go to a meeting. You don't have to like us. You just get on Zoom. You, you don't have to think it's going to work. Just act like it. You don't, all you have to do is read a little bit of the literature. You know, you just have to try to meditate. You just have to try to call somebody. If you can't call them, you can text them. If you've got nothing to say, you can raise your hand. Hi, my name's Mary. I'm new. That's all you have to say. You just have to do everything consistently. I had no consistency before I came in, in here, and you guys and my sponsor taught me. The other thing you, you have to do, I think, is develop a relationship with something that is larger than yourself, and I don't think that matters what it is because that will come between you and the food. Um, and I have a friend who says God is in the pause, you know, this program gives us a minute to pause. I know people who are in here, who are here, thank you very much, when I had a week. And now they probably have 30 years or 40, and I have 15. And uh, that's how the program works. You just don't leave. You know, you just don't leave. And uh, so I just want to tell you, there's hope. I didn't like being here. I didn't want to be here. There's huge hope here. And whatever you're suffering from, I, I sponsor bulimics, I sponsor anorexics that have gone down to 77 pounds and now are over 100. Whatever it is you're looking for, if you keep coming back, rarely have we seen a person fail who's thoroughly followed our path. So thank you so much for being here. I love seeing people I know in here. It's so exciting. Okay. Um, This is time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leaders are my own, that's for sure, and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Please remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. Thank you so much. Um, uh, uh, you mentioned the the lack of nurture mm-hmm. in your life. Can mm-hmm. you tell me how you nurture yourself today? <clears throat> okay, so I'm pausing, um, and I'm going to ask my higher power for a little bit of help because I'm not sure that I do very well. But the quick answer and the real answer is I believe I go to meetings. And when I go to meetings and see people in here that I love and care about, that is deeply nurturing for me, deeply. That is, for me, carrying the message, but they carry the message to me. Let's be very clear about that. Um, I've also identified things in my life that are nurturing. For me, doing, doing service is nurturing. It's very counterintuitive. I actually do service in the jails. In another program, it's a pain in the rear. It takes two effing hours to get there. I hate it every minute driving. But I get there and, you know, sometimes they listen to me and sometimes they don't. But being with children is nurturing for me. I've I've identified things that are nurturing. Um, Certain forms of meditation are nurturing for me. Um, Certain forms of exercise are nurturing for me. Um, Yoga and dance are particularly nurturing. I no longer go to gyms that make me feel bad. Um... Being with my animals is nurturing for me. 
uh, being with my grandchildren when when they're saying please and thank you is nurturing for me. <laughs> but um, but that is and and establishing that that connection with the higher power whatever it is. Sometimes when I wake up in the morning, which is a very difficult time for me for reasons I don't fully understand, doesn't really matter. But I just breathe in faith and I breathe out worry. And I breathe in faith and I breathe out worry. And I don't know what faith means, but that's what I do. And the other thing I try to do is um, listen to music and notice things that are beautiful. It could be a leaf, it could be somebody helping somebody across the street, but those things are, are nurturing to me. But a, a lot of it is, is going to meetings and, and in contact with my fellows because I just receive so much... I hate to use the word God because not all of us believe in God, but I receive so much God from them. I so I, Let's just call it divinity. Thank you so much. Also a free-range child. Um, yeah. <laughs> So what actions do you take when you when there are feelings that you do not want to feel? Um Okay, you I'm going to tell you the good part, not the bad part. The bad part is I'll act out. I'll yell at other people who are in the way. Um but I actually do write a lot. I write letters to God or my higher self or my higher consciousness and I have that deity, divinity, that higher self right back. I do that a lot. I also will sit down and meditate and I will really go into the feeling and I will breathe in that feeling, whatever it is. Could be anxiety, could be pain, could be grief. And I will um, breathe it out for others. I mean, I, I, I will meditate and I will write. I will also um, walk around the block with my dogs and just notice there's a bird. There's my foot. There's a tree. I'll call people who make me happy and make me laugh. Um, so I actually try not to ignore it. I actually try to go into it as much as I as much as I can. Um, anxiety is particularly difficult for me, um, and for some bizarre reason, I've discovered recently I have quite a bit of it. I'm not quite sure why that is. So thank you. Michael. Hey, Lucy, great to see you. Thanks for your lead. You talked about resentment. Yeah. Can you give us a practical application of how you overcome them through the program? Yes, and thank you for asking that. Um, first of all, as I shared, I am not a very good getting over resentment person. Um, but one of the things I heard in a meeting when I was with my dad two weeks ago is <clears throat> come over and sit on their side of the table. Be their lawyer. So what's that mean? My dad's telling me a story he's told me 12 times before, in which he figures prominently. Um, Okay, so... My dad is 95. He's losing his power. He's looking at what his legacy is. How can I look from his point of view and have compassion for him? How can I, how can I, my mother-in-law, oh my God, I'm about to go to a soccer game with her. She'll show up and go, the kids aren't paying attention to me, and start yelling at them when they're playing soccer. You know, well, she's alone and she's lonely. 
Do I want to punch her in the face? Maybe. But she's alone and she's lonely. And, and I, I can pray. And, and I'll tell you, my sponsor slaps me upside the head. Because, <laughs> this year on my birthday in August, I called her on the way to a meeting. She said, you sound very sick. I was like, what the F? She said, you sound very sick. You have so many resentments. I'm like, oh, she's right. And she said, and happy birthday. (laughs) (laughs) But but let me tell you something. I needed to hear that. I needed to hear it, Michael. And and I do things that everybody else does too. I pray for people. I write it out. I do an inventory. I ask my higher power to help me. I ask what they may be suffering from. You know, so I do all that too that the big book very clearly tells us tells us to do. And I ask questions. You know, I ask people with long time sobriety and abstinence. I say, What do you do for resentment? What do you do? Well, let me tell you, I had a niece. And, mm. So I ask, because it's a, a problem for me. And and really what's happened is to me is I've really understood deeply that the resentments don't hurt them as at all. You know, it really is I'm taking rat poison. It, it really, it, it just, it just keeps me from leading my best life, and I'm too old to waste time. You know, I don't have another fifty years to hold on to the idiot who's on the radio. <coughs> anyway, thanks. Mm. How do you stay sober when you're traveling? <clears throat> okay, um, I never trust anybody else's food. Mm-hmm. So I have food on the plane with me. Uh, I may or may not know what they're serving on the plane. I know where I'm going. I have my own food with me. I mean, obviously, I'm not bringing, you know, lasagna or cooked food and thing, but I've got whatever bars work for me. I know I... Okay, so because I have to be gluten and uh, dairy-free... It's really difficult to travel some countries whose ideas of breakfast are croissants and cheese. It's a problem. You know, so I have learned ways to work around it, but I, I have a plan. I, I don't... And I can be a pain in the ass about it, too. I don't go into, oh, we're all going to have pizza. No, we're not, actually. We're, we're not. And, and I, I will say, that's really great. I'm going next door. They have salads. We're going to the sandwich shop. Oh, well, I can't eat bread. So I... I I, I plan it out. And now I don't want you to think that means I'm measuring my food. I don't. I don't want you to think that that means I know every restaurant I go. I don't. But I, I don't allow there to be a lot of spontaneous decisions. Because spontaneous decisions is to me like intuitive eating. What the F is that? You know, my intuitive eating is let's have more brownies. There's no such thing as intuitive eating in this body. And so I don't allow there to be a lot of you know, spontaneity. You know, I, I've been to parties where I had barbecue chicken in a purse. And I'm taking, they're, they're serving a sit-down dinner, and I'm like, oh, that's fascinating. And I've got chicken, because all they're serving is lasagna, and I can't eat pasta and cheese. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I'm pretty, um, like, I just went to Peru. And before I went to Peru, I knew exactly what I could eat. They have a ton of ceviche. Perfect. Sweet potatoes. Great. So I knew no matter what happens, I could have that. Thank you. Tara? What area do you see the most 
recovered and the least recovered? Um, thank you for asking. It's such a beautiful question. Um, the least recovery is my resentments, which I did discuss, and, and my complaints. And, and I'll tell you how it looks. I have a really beautiful life, but I'm not a star on Broadway, so I'm mad. Okay? Um, my grandchildren, who I've always wanted, uh, don't come over enough, so I'm mad. Okay, so it's what I think the picture is. So it's lowering those expectations, according to my sponsor. So that's the least recovery. The most recovery for me is acceptance and love for my body. Like, I really am grateful that I'm 67 and I can go to Pilates and I can go to tap and I can play tennis and I like the way I look. I am more happy with the way I look now than I've ever been in my life. And showing up for people, I think, like I talked about with, with my family that's dying, showing up for my dad's dog right now. You know, so that's where I, I've, I think I've had the most recovery. And that, that self-love when it comes to, to body, because I really do feel that this is a disease of phenomenal self-hatred and aggression. At least it was for me. I can't speak for anybody else. And thank you for being here. You told me once that I got to be an old-timer when I got to 10 years, and I'm like, yes, I've made it. Um, okay. Uh, this is the time for questions only. Now it's the time for secretary's announcements. Oh, you're in five minutes. Oh, I have five minutes more? Oh, my God, okay. <laughs> Courtney. Okay. Um, in, uh, the tool you, what is the tool you use in the moments of your most intense fear? <clears throat> uh, in my most intense fear, it's often in the morning, I start praying just on a continuous loop. I just start saying the serenity prayer. Then I move to the third step. Then I move to the seventh step. And they, I just say them like a, a, a mantra. I just go over and over. And then I also start um, breathing as deeply as I possibly can. And then, you know, it says a lot in the big book that we take time for inventory. We take time out for weekends of, of self-examination, of time spent with our higher power. And uh, I try to do that. I have certain books that I read that really, really, really help me. I won't mention what they are because they're outside issues involving outside religions. I have, in my recovery, um, pulled from all the major religions I believe in the world. Not Zoroastrian, but it's not major necessarily. But like I've pulled from everything, whatever speaks to me in the moment. And there's a certain book in books speaking to me right now. And I pull from that. Um, I had a really bad moment um, Wednesday night. And uh, I got up and I just started reading really old-fashioned AA books. Like really a lot of old-fashioned religion. But they just spoke to me in that moment. you know. And, uh, and I just started reading and writing about what was my part. I wrote about what was my part in the fear and what came up for me was competition. You know, I can compete about anything. I went to a Thai restaurant the other night, and my girlfriend said, you ordered that to see if you could eat something that spicy, didn't you? I said, yeah. She said, now you're suffering, right? I said, yeah. <laughs> What's the point? But So in moments of horrible fear, I pray, and I read what satisfies me, and I nurtures me, and I... And I, I breathe 
because I, I do have a lot of really bad fear. And then I just try to stay in the moment because I can't do anything about the wars in the world or the climate or I can't do anything about all these outside issues. But I can stay, my butt's in this chair right now and I'm looking at you guys, I can stay right here right now. Thank you. How do uh, the people in your life um, react to your involvement with the program? Maybe things shift, oh, you can eat this, now you can't eat that. Or is there not really a, a discussion? No discussion. <laughs> it hasn't gone well. It, it, no discussion. You know, I told my, my family I was in OA. They were like, I've never seen you overeat. Like, weren't you there at night when I was standing in front of the... It just doesn't go well for me. And I know many people share it with their family, and it goes well, and, and, and their friends are supportive. And What does go well for me, and which is fortunate for me, is because I have an allergy, uh, the food, the gluten and the dairy, my sister knows that. My sister-in-law can't remember, okay? <laughs> that harks back to the resentment question. So my sister-in-law can't remember. So my job is to expect for her not to remember. And if I'm not doing that, I'm effed up. Um... I don't expect other people to take care of me, Atusa's question. I bring my own food. I take care of myself. So right now I'm going to the soccer game for my grandkids. I know there's a fruit vendor. I know that I have a kind bar in my purse. I, I, I know other people work to 12-step. They carry the message. I'm, I'm sorry to be so politically incorrect, but people look at me and they go, you don't look... Well, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to say to them, you have no idea what I've eaten. I don't want to... I don't want to say I, I ordered blow-up pants and blew them up like a Michelin man so I would sweat more. I mean, and I went to a nutritionist who made me sick. I, mean, I, I don't experience... You guys get it. I mean, I'm sure there's a better way to do it than I'm doing it, but, or else, you know, my father remembers. He'll say, well, I don't have the right bread for you. My, my beautiful sister remembers I need gluten-free bread. You know, and, and by the way, I travel with a frozen loaf of gluten-free bread. You know, so I travel with my own rice crackers. So nobody needs to worry. And and I sometimes I feel like I'm burdening them with information they don't really understand because they're not addicts. Or they don't know that they're addicts. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Thank you for the question.